Blog I don't know what the radio. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Is your All headset right. My headset's not working. Not. Doesn't seem like it's working. Oh, we had a two-minute warning. that working? No. Yeah, I'm not for sure why the headset issue is not working, but if anyone's listening, feel free to uh to call in because um I was under the impression that we're not doing this through our phones, but it seems like that's what's happening. So anyway um, if anyone wants to call in, the number is uh, 646-478-5691. You think if we if we hung up, it might switch to our headphones, or it, it should already be on our headphones? I think it should already be on them. But we can. You want to try hanging up? I'll try hanging up. Okay. You just Sounds stay. Good. You just stay on. All right. Text me if uh, if it's not not working or if it works. So this is Corrales Radio for anyone that's listening. Um, this is our, our our pilot episode, and we have not figured out how blog talk radio works, so it should be interesting. But um, if anyone is listening to us right now. Um, my name is Jeff Godbold, and I'm trying to uh, see if Dayton um, gets through, because um, we're supposed to be using headsets, and <laughs> our headsets are not, for some reason, working. Yeah, that didn't work so, either. It didn't? Okay. No. I wonder if I could plug it into my smartphone. Well, Maybe. But that defeats the whole purpose of having a headset, <laughs> I think. Um, so can you hear me? We have a switch. We have a switch. We have a caller. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Let it's me plug into my phone. It's in my headset. Are you five oh five oh three? Yeah, five four five. Yeah, that's me. Okay. Well, um, is your and your headset's not working? 
It is now, but it's plugged in. Oh, your headset. Oh well, I don't. I don't think that's needed now. It looks like. So, at least I don't have any reason to plug. I've got a, an iPhone and my my headset. There's no point to even use it because my phone works fine. Is there a way to call in on a computer? Like, I mean, that's weird. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if a guest wants to call in, they could call in at 646-478-5691. No, no, I mean, like, like us. Were we not supposed to call in on our phones to get the show started? Uh, I think you have to. So, um, anyway. Do you we'll want to get uh, underway then? I guess. Um, uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. I'm, um, I'm putting you on speaker, and I'm going to try and... Uh, oh, I've gotten two messages from Eric Berg. He says he can hear you. We sound fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, hey. well, then we apologize for the last uh, last few minutes. Um, okay, well, then we'll get underway then. This is Corrales right. Radio. My name's uh, Jeff Godbold. I'm the host, and this is my uh, co-host, Dayton Croyton. How's it going, Dayton? It's uh, going going okay now. All right. Well, I have to send a huge thanks out to uh, Eric Burke from Morelia Python Radio right now because he just uh, saved us a lot a lot of humiliation. Um, and he just messaged me and told me that we're we're on and then we sound good. So anyway, um, so uh, we figured that the best way to uh, start out with Corrales Radio is to kind of uh, talk a little bit about the host and co-host um, and give you guys uh, a, a little brief um, uh, description of who we are and what we're into and um, then, you know, lead into the show. But uh, we've got a great show for you guys tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, about uh, Amazon tree boas um, with uh, Jason Hood and then a little bit later, we should have uh, Nick Mutton call in, and we'll be talking about annulated tree boas, which are one of the more uh, rare species um, of Corallus, but probably one of the the most, probably hands down, the most docile species. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started. Um, so uh, I guess my first question um for you, Dayton, would be uh, uh, what got you into herps? What got you into reptiles? Um, well, I guess I started at a pretty young age, um, probably like most people. It's a pretty common story. Uh, and I don't know if it was necessarily reptiles at first, uh, but just, you know, any kind of critter I could find when I was a kid in general, um, whether it be an insect or a reptile or you know, a bird or anything, really. Um, and uh, I, I caught and kept uh, various species of amphibians and, and reptiles as a kid. And uh, then I kind of got out of it for a while and 
my senior year of high school, I decided uh, that I wanted to get back into it and uh, that I wanted to try breeding something. And so that's when I did my research on what species I wanted to keep. And I kind of stumbled upon uh, Amazon tree boas. And that, okay. that be became my focus and what I wanted to breed. Really cool, man. They are they are definitely addicting. Um, so, uh, so you kind of got into Amazon that way. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it kind of uh, proceeds into my um, my next question, which would be, uh, you know, what projects are you working with uh, besides Amazon Trebos, obviously. Well, uh, I am working with green tree pythons, and I do have a couple um, carpet pythons. Uh, okay. I guess some of my breeding goals with Amazon Trebo is, uh, if you wanted to go into that, um, well, I haven't produced a red yet, uh, and that would be one of my goals, just just the, the basic goal. Um, I've produced uh, three litters of tigers, which was a goal of mine. And uh, now I'm kind of thinking about I'd like to produce uh, like a double gene Amazon Trevo. Awesome. Yeah, that uh, there's probably a lot of uh, Hortolanus uh, keepers out there and breeders that share the same <laughs> goal that you do. Um, yeah, and I guess my next question would be, uh, what? Um, well, I guess what what made you think that uh, Corralis Radio would be a venture that you'd like to to take part in? Uh, honestly, at first, it, it was never. I never thought I'd be doing or co-hosting a radio show, um, and not necessarily something I'd be interested in. And uh, once you, I saw your post on uh, Morelia, uh, Morelia Veritas forums, um, I decided that, yeah, I thought it'd be cool. And you were someone I had spoke to before on the phone and about Amazon tree boas. And uh, I know this show doesn't pertain to that um, species, but... I thought it would be something interesting, and I, I, I'd like to give it a shot. So, awesome! Yeah. Well, cool, man. Um, I know as a as the host, I'm stoked to have you on the show uh, because, you know, uh, for anyone listening in, uh, I've known Dayton for a couple years now, and uh, we've had some previous dealings which have all been positive. Um, before uh, we got in. And um, or before you know we had decided to talk about the show and uh, Dayton, um, you know, definitely uh, struck me as a as a guy that uh, I could jive with fine and 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 you know we talked easy and you were a good guy as far as everything I knew and so I was I was thrilled when somebody that I had previous positive experiences with you know called me up and was like you know hey if you're looking for co-host I'm in. So, and you kind of had the—I uh, don't know—you got the 
public going in a way that I, I would not be able to. I'm just not that sort of person. Um, so that was, you know, I would never be able to initiate this on my own. Right, right. Um, well, those are all the questions I have for you. Um, uh, we have, we actually have a, uh, uh, caller right now from 847. Um, I'm going to, uh, click over and, and, well, actually, well, let, let's, before we get into that, let's go ahead and, and finish up with our, with our intro of the show. Okay. So, um, so I kind of had some questions for you, and uh, I was wondering how long had Corrales Radio been an idea before you decided to make that the public post? All right. Um, well, I had been a longtime listener of um, Morelia Python Radio, and um, I liked the idea of there being a radio show to talk about some of these rarer species that kind of had their own niche crowd um, in the reptile hobby or industry, whatever you want to call it. And I remember thinking, and I actually messaged um, uh, Eric and Owen at one time, um, saying, you know, I know these guys aren't pythons, but it'd be really cool if you could do a Corallus episode. And I had caught... Um, little, uh, you know, episodes here and there from Herp Nation or Urban Jungle Radio or Morelia Python Radio, and because um, I believe they had Jason Hood on at one time. And I remember thinking, you know, this is really good, and I was just kind of like sucking it up like a sponge. But I was like, man, I wish they would have more, you know, I wish the episodes were either longer or they would do them more often um, because, mm-hmm. you know, I just couldn't get enough of Corrales and you know I put the vibe out there for everybody else you know on Facebook was where it kind of started you know here's an idea and I was thinking that there's some people that were a little bit more credible than me that would take the ball and run with it you know that have produced mm-hmm. um, different species of Corrales over the years and I thought that they would be the ones to go through with it and I got a really surprising wake-up call when everybody seemed to think that I should do it. And I remember thinking I wasn't really planning on being the host. I just kind of thought that everybody else, you know, like there's a, there, I thought that somebody else would run with it and, you know, but I thought about it and I thought, you know, I don't have uh, quite the breeding experience that um, a lot of guys out there have, but I'm, you know, super passionate about Corrales. I, I think they're awesome snakes. Um, to me, being a huge Morelia head, you know, I love, 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 you know, carpets and scrubs and, and green tree pythons and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you know, the Corrales complex is kind of like the boa version. And so I was, you know, I love them. And, and I think that they're super underappreciated and um, misrepresented. And so I thought that why not? do the show you know i've got the passion for them yeah Uh, and it seems like uh you know a lot of people have been waiting for this we've had some positive feedback yes surprisingly (laughs) so what do you have any specific goals for the show um 
Yeah, I I want to go as 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 far with it as um, the community will allow. You know, I I think that you know the start of the show is kind of um, obviously for those tuning in. We had a little bit of a funny rough start uh, today, but um, I want this to be something that's consistent, and I want to try and cover all avenues of Corrales, or at least all the ones available, because we're we're doing our best to uh, cover all the different species that make up Corrales, but, you know, there are only three species that are kept um, in, in numbers here in the United States, um, and so very few, uh, I, you know, that's not even half of Corrales that we can find people to talk about. So yeah. um, it's going to be hard to find people to talk about some of the other species, but we're going to do our best to to offer up a, a fair representation. And so um, I wanted to uh, give Corrales enthusiasts a place where they can go to learn more about Corrales, to kind of bring the community together. Um, I think that's a, a huge plus uh, for having a show like this. I've definitely seen it with the Morelia community. And I wanted to um I wanted there to be a show presence, you know, depending on how far this goes, I I'd like for us to be able to, you know, have tables at shows uh, you know, for representing Corrales Radio and pass out, you know, literature and stuff like that about the genus to to show people that they're awesome and that they're not the the bad, you know, snakes that uh people have thought that they were you know, in the past. So. Yeah, that'd be cool. So, so yeah. you think we should, uh, we should answer this call here? Yeah, they've been on for about 10 minutes. So let me, <laughs> let me bring them on real quick. Um, hold on one second. 847. Hey, what's up guys? Hello? It's Jason. Hey, Jason. How's it going? Good, man. I wasn't sure if um, I called in the right number or not because it was pushing me in yeah, like a regular guest caller. Yeah. Well, regular caller, I guess. As a, as a guest caller, I don't know. I have not figured out how this thing works. Um, yeah. If you haven't heard the first 10 minutes, we're a little confused. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, think you're on, show. actually. If, if I can hear you both, then you're on. So Yeah, no, I'm, I'm on that. I can. I should not have the other, the actual uh, show on my computer at the same time. I can hear myself in the background talking, so I'm actually going to shut that off. <laughs> oh, <laughs> gotcha. So, um, first off, we really appreciate uh, you calling in, Jason, to uh, talk to us. Um, I know it's a little bit late for you, and with both of us being out here on the West Coast, that's one thing we had to really take into consideration is um, we wanted to plan it early enough to where people in the Midwest and, and East Coast could at least tune in for part of the show, uh, if not all of it. And so we're we're grateful that you uh, you know moved your schedule around to to make time. Yeah, you guys are gonna be a little rough for the East Coasters, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that well, people who really want to be on will want to hear it will, will find a way plus they can listen to the the podcast afterwards I guess 
But uh, right, yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to be on here. We need to get some more Corrales love out there. So, okay, what, yeah, what, I we, think, uh, what do we want to talk about? Well, we want to talk about Amazon tree balls, and uh, and at least with you, and um, uh, I guess I'll start off with uh, kind of the first thing is, uh, and then Dayton can follow up uh, afterwards, but. You know, I was wanting to to ask you, you know, what got you into Amazons uh, in the first place as far as, like, how long have you been keeping them and what what triggered your enthusiasm? Um, Well, I was one of those terrible jobber guys in Florida for a little while, and I was hitting all the the wholesale shops, and I'd see when they come in in mass and, you know, run through and, and check them all out, and I would always always loved to, to deal with them and I would rarely ever get bit even by the fresh wild caught just and I, I, I rarely get bit by any of my snakes I only have one that consistently bites me actually out of my ATBs but um, so I, I, maybe I do something right in the way I hold them but uh, anyways I, I'd go through them all and I'd, I'd love them I'd, I'd pick them up for the stores and I'd bring them to the stores and all the stores would want them and so I got stuck with a few of them for a while and then was finally able to move them and uh but the, yeah, like you said earlier in the show, yeah, they just have that, such a terrible rep, and, and I just never saw that. Whenever I, I thought they were like the, one of the most beautiful snakes and the the big giant heads and the skinny necks, and you know, I just got infatuated with that. Uh, and then my my main goal with all my actual collection was to get captive born stuff if at all possible. So I finally. Uh, Walked into one of the shops and it was <laughs> it was probably worse than buying a wild caught because the guy had uh, typical of the wholesale shops he had a whole rack of babies and of all different uh, species and he had uh, I don't know six or eight Amazons that were just born there three days earlier and they were already covered in mites <laughs> so <laughs> for some stupid reason I picked them up and uh, I still have that pair today um, they're probably um, 10 or 12 years old now, but you know, mites aren't the end of the world, and they're only a couple of days old. I figured they couldn't have done that much damage to them at that point. So brought them home, cleaned them up, and uh, just had those for the longest time, and then was able to produce some. And once once I produced my first litter, uh, that really just sparked it, and I got a, I don't know, 20 or so, 20 adults. Just uh, the seeing the babies pop out, that was just that was too amazing. <laughs> the variety, the the all the cuteness, all the giant eyes staring up at you. <clears throat> so it it that was just like the once that happens, I think it's all over for just about everybody. Right. They definitely have some personality, and um, I've explained it as kind of like when you get a litter, it's it's like Christmas morning because you don't know what you're going to get. I mean, you know, with them being uh, polygenic and polymorphic, it's, you know, you run the gambit of getting some patternless animals, but then you could get some really heav- heavily patterned animals and, you know, multiple colors within the same litter. So it it makes, well, you know, breeding them fun. Well, yeah, I mean, with the, I mean, the three of us on the phones right now, we got a whole bunch of experience, and I think it, Yes, you don't know what you're gonna get the first time you breed them, but once you breed them, you find out that certain males tend to have 
the, the ability to throw a certain look in their litters, and then certain females also have a tendency to throw certain looks in their in their litters, and um, you you can kind of plan out breeding. So the first couple years I've been breeding, the the big group I have now is just trying to figure out what's in there, what are my possibilities, right. and then now I now I can actually form a game plan off what I've produced. Like I've got a male that tends to throw a lot of really heavy pattern babies, and he's gone to four different females. Every litter's had this really crazy, heavy pattern baby look to it in a, a few of the babies. Um, I had a garden male that I just bred to a yellow female that um, my buddy Gavin Brink originally had, and it came in from a zoo that wasn't a very good zoo. <laughs> and the uh, he he had he probably has the record for the smallest female ever to give birth to live babies, um, and he had her in an enclosure that he just didn't he wasn't even expecting babies, and because um, she was so tiny. And she had four or five babies that were all reds and oranges. And he thought maybe this gardener was either this gardener or another male was possibly the, the the father because they were the zoo had kept all of them in one big cage. And um, they were four or five-year-old uh, animals that were the size of, like, 18-month-old ATVs. They were just tiny. And, uh, wow. wow. Anyways, that garden, uh, we, he, we really thought that was the male that produced those, that litter, I bred them to a sibling and we got, I only got one live baby and that was a red and I think two or three other reds in the litter, but from a garden. And then this year I bred them to a yellow and uh, I got like four or five reds, uh, well, two or three reds, depending on how, how picky you want to get about what you're going to consider a red. Uh, so I closed it on the, the webpage the other day or the the Facebook page of the day right. was one of the reds. Um, but he, yeah, he, he just seems to be a, a male that will throw reds. And uh, her previous litter was all yellows from a male that everything else he bred to was all yellows. So, yeah, we we don't know what we're going to get, but at the same time we can learn and from breeding trials what, what animals are capable of. So I... I I just say it makes one of those little things that uh, we, yeah you don't know what you're going to get but once you try it you, you definitely find it out and then people don't seem to don't seem to make that connection that there's there is two different steps to this there's yes you have no idea what you're going to get the first with a baby when you get a baby from somebody but with the parents the lineage you can start figuring out what you're likely to get and through breeding trials you can see if what you think is possible is something you can actually get because I think it's that that makes it puts a lot more on us and we can a lot more we can figure out. I just don't like the idea that you have no idea what you're going to get. As a, right. It's kind of the same way I don't like when people say that uh, Amazons are bitey snakes. I don't I don't think they're, you know, face rippers or I hate that whenever I post pictures. They're like, oh, those are so beautiful, but they're they're all face rippers. It's like, no, they're not. I have one do out you, of... Do you handle yours with a, a hook or just freehand? I, I, the, the one female... Depending on on how sensitive I'm feeling that day, <laughs> the one female I'll go ahead and uh, use a hook once in a while on. Um, it just she's she she definitely had a really rough uh, interaction with humans. She's got a, a tail tip missing, which I, I think was actually from a wild encounter. But I think she's just a big a big big headed female from the wild. Whenever she was captured, and I think she was just pinned every step of the way and, and neck you know, neck grabbed every step of the way. So she's 
and she was definitely injured. I mean, she's she's not a happy camper by any stretch of imagination. When I and when she came in, she had like noose marks around her skin. Um, actually, was never I was never going to pick her up. I was just at a a local show, and a guy had this big beautiful garden that he was trying to sell, uh, and he wanted I think twenty bucks for this big adult garden. I was like, well. Okay. <laughs> he says, Yeah, I'm going to college. I just need to get rid of them and no one wants these things. I'm like, Okay. Yeah, said, well, if you want that, I got this other sell. one, but what's that? Oh, I was just saying the gardens can be kind of hard to sell. They've actually been my best seller. Um, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I just hands down, I think because they're, they're a, a lower price range. Um, right. I, I price kind of like all my gardens spot. out between. Yeah, they're seventy-five to one hundred twenty-five bucks, depending on how many they get and how how heavy people are trying to fight for them, and uh, and also what they're looking like. But for the most part, I price them out at seventy-five bucks, and they're the first thing that's sold out of every year. Um, and last year, I had people calling up asking about any gardens. So, what um, I had left at uh, the last things I sold this year were all my yellows. Um, they were. I think just a higher. I think it's a price point issue. People right. want to get into ATDs or at least want to try ATDs. Um, people absolutely adore Halloween babies, uh, but a lot of times they don't tend to keep them. They want to try ATBs. They want to, tr- and they really like the Halloween look. And no matter how many times you tell them that all that red and orange <laughs> is going to go away, they still want to pick them up. And then uh, people end up wanting to get rid of them at a year or two old because they lose the orange. And they decide they don't maybe really like ATVs anymore, uh, which is bizarre to me. But I, 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 um, straight up gardens to me are the easiest thing to sell. Oh, so um, it's interesting how different but, uh, people have different experiences with, you know, like you, you probably, you say that they're the easiest to sell for you, and there's probably other people out there that may, may have a harder time, like Dayton was saying, of selling gardens. Um, but you know, it's I don't know. It's kind of it's, it's interesting. I was just talking to Jeff earlier. Uh, oh, go ahead. I think it's also your um, your enthusiasm. I, I I truly love ATVs. It's not a sales pitch when I get somebody at the table and wants to talk ATVs to me. So I'll I'll chat them up and they get really excited. But then they look at the price point and they're like, mm, I can't. I can't drop 200 bucks for that, but I can definitely do 75 over here. And I think it's also um, kind of the the bargain Walmart shopper kind of deal where people like, like I said, they, they want they really want an ATB, but they just they don't have the 200 bucks or you know 175 or whatever it is that you have on some of your colored colored animals. Um, so I think that's that's what makes it. You, you get something, you're, you're talking to them and you get really excited about it and you well, look at this and look at that and you get really into it because you, you love your animals. They they feed off that and then they want one. Right. But then they just want the money. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, uh, at shows, hands down, the gardens are my best sellers. Uh, online, I've had, um, I've had some really weird gardens in the last couple of years too that uh, people have gobbled up. Uh, Samantha Gage, every strange <laughs> every strange garden I have she seems to jump on so she was good this year. She gave everybody I think uh two weeks or something. <laughs> I didn't I didn't even realize it but she had been doing a countdown or something. <laughs> Excuse me. And 
<laughs> she she messaged me. She's like, well, I gave everybody two weeks, so I want that garden. <laughs> but um, it yeah, I think it's a, a passion thing and a, a, just an idea of how you talk to people. Right. So do you think you sell more to, uh, like, beginners, people who are just getting into uh, Amazon Tree Buzz, or people that already collect them and, and uh, I don't know, know what they're dealing with? Um, both, yeah. It there's pretty good mix of both. I, I rarely, I rarely ever agree to sell on anybody. It comes up and goes, oh, cool, what's that? Oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. And I usually try to talk them out of it. And you know, do you have what do you have for caging? Well, why don't you get the cage first? And let's you know do this, do that. And if they're still really into the animal, they really still want to get it, then. Depending on the vibe of the person and how how much I think they're actually going to go out and get an appropriate cage, I will sell to new people, like brand new. But I, I frequently, uh, over the last few years, I've just had a ton of babies, I'd like around 30 or so each year. And, uh, well, I had like close to 50 uh, last year. But um, wow. I have enough of them that, People don't feel like I'm not going to have them next time around. So if people are really interested in getting an animal, I just don't think they have the experience quite yet. I try to talk them out of getting it right then, and you know, get the cage, get the right setup, buy a book, and uh, come back to me. And you know, I'll put it on hold. I have no problem holding on to an animal. And most of the animals, uh, like I have Timley coming up this week, and uh, and you guys are West Coasters, but Timley is the <clears throat> it's the show out here. It's the the big giant show and. I'm actually speaking on ATBs uh, for one of their talk segments, and I'm, I'm walking in the door with one baby from this year that I can sell at this point that, that meets my minimum meals requirement out of 27 babies. So I'm actually pulling some of my holdbacks out of holdback status, and I'm going to go into a show where I have all the great advertising of being on the speaker list and all that with nothing I can actually sell. So none of these animals are going to move until probably springtime. Gotcha. That is a that is a massive show. I'm actually from Florida, and uh, Daytona has kind of um, <clears throat> taken a, a number two spot to the Tinley show um, over the last year few years, and it's a it's a show I'd really like to make it to um, eventually. Yeah, the I I did Daytona. A bunch of times. I'm also from Florida originally, and uh, I, I moved up here. And everybody's telling me that Tinley was bigger. Tinley was bigger, and at the time, eight, ten years ago, it wasn't. And the last couple of years, Tinley, like this last year, last fall, Tinley was the biggest show I've ever been to. It was just enormous, and it took me 40 minutes just to walk from one corner to the other, just to get getting through the crowd and getting through by all the animals and. People randomly, you know, wanting to say hi. It, it, it was a 40-minute walk, and uh, they, they did. A, they're doing a really good job there, and they, um, those guys do a really good job supporting the industry. So it's definitely a show I, I don't mind supporting and, and dropping money on. And Daytona is just, uh, it seems like Wayne's kind of pushing himself out of the market at this point. I don't know what he's doing. Yeah. Um... I've I've just heard that the rep I you know, being from Jacksonville, I went, I'm only an hour north of of Daytona and um 
the representation has gone more to um, a select few species that I won't get into, but um, and it seems like Tinley has much more of a fair representation of some of the stuff that isn't, you know, commercially bred uh, on a large scale. And just from what I've heard, I mean, I haven't been there, but um, and it's cool, like that. There's so like when you said that it took you 40 minutes to get to the crowd. It's really it's really comforting in a way, and and uh, kind of makes you uh, want to take your breeding project to the next level, knowing that these things are popular. You know that you know reptiles are are growing, and they're not you know kind of this hush hush you know keeping your keep it in your basement type of a of a endeavor that they used to be. Um, and uh, I don't know. I just think it's really neat whenever you go to a show and it's just packed full of people. That show is definitely packed. Um, <laughs> the <clears throat> the spring show, uh, they actually had about half the vendors, but the people were still there. Uh, I was actually trying to promote a something that the my herb society does so I was out in the front hall at one of the the free table spots and the the line was I had pictures of where the line was just like straight out the door down the side of the building and around the back of the building while they were waiting to get in it was just pretty pretty amazing to see that many people there at the opening just raring to go so it's definitely a cool show and uh the it's at the hotel and the the conference Everything is all one building, so it's definitely an interesting atmosphere. <laughs> it's, right. Uh, it, it's 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 if you're somebody that likes the party, you need to try to get a hotel room about four or five months in advance, and they they literally do sell out four or five months in advance. So it's uh it's it's a it's a well supported show. Right. Do you see other people having uh, tree boas for sale there? Um, the, the Condro Coalition guys show up there. Um, I know, uh, I got a couple animals from, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name. Uh, the guy's got brain cancer now. Rico Walder. Rico Walder. Rico. Yeah. Rico brought a bunch of ATVs in and he actually didn't sell any, but he had a bunch of adults. Uh, he was looking category adults. He was looking at somewhere between I think 350 to 700 on his animals, and didn't seem like anybody was willing to grab them at that price. Uh, I ended up picking up a couple at the end of the show, but they they do their their giant uh, chondro and uh, emerald tree boa section there. As far as actual Amazon tree boas, it's only usually the there's. Uh, what's the politically correct way to put this? <laughs> there's there's the one of the wholesale guys. There are a couple of wholesale guys mm-hmm. that come in with their mite infested imports. So whenever whenever right. they're there, I just tell people to look real careful at their animals, pick them up and hold <laughs> them, and check your hands afterwards, and then come back and talk to me after they wash their hands, and we can talk about price differences. Right. <laughs> but actually, what's that? I said, well, it's good you're there representing. Yeah, especially speak on yeah. this year. I mean, that that should help for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I love the animals. I love talking about them. I just got to get the my PowerPoint together. <laughs> That's right. my only problem. I've got a, a week to go, and I haven't haven't actually got it going. Um, but yeah, I think it's gonna, it'll be a great show, and it'll be a good time. It's definitely if you guys are looking for a show to come out to, it's definitely a, a good show uh, all around. Whether you you vend or just visit, I I plan on making it. I'm sure Dayton probably does too. Uh, um, I've never been to a really big show before. Just just local ones. Wow, well, this will blow your mind. <laughs> <laughs> a whole new world. Um, yeah, it so. It, it's incredible to walk into a, a building that they've it's uh, they pulled down I wanna say four divider walls for four so four separate conference areas that they would they could normally have set up four or five and they just pull down all the walls or pull them back and we've got the whole room and they were I don't know if they're actually gonna do it this year, they're talking about running a um a zip line across the thing. If it's oh, that man. big, you actually zip line across the the whole building, which <laughs> well, I hopefully will not be underneath <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. So I got my uh, I got my first Amazon in um, 2004. It was like a like a bright red uh, animal. I think I paid 190 shipped. It was from a guy in South Florida. I don't even remember his name. Um, I wanted an emerald tree boa, uh, but I couldn't afford one, and so I I settled on you know, Amazon's, which at the time people kind of considered on the the poor man's tree boa, and so um, I I got one and was blown away by the the colors. And that's one thing I wanted to ask you because you've been in it for a long time. Um, you know, Dayton and I were were just kind of wondering your thoughts on like. How how is their popularity or their I guess niche in the reptile um, hobby? How has that changed over the last you know fifteen years, even to the last five years? In your opinion? Well, I, you still have all the people out there that speak out of ignorance. You know, people have never actually owned an Amazon about them being face biters and just. Those people just annoy me in general because they they tend to also also offer uh, caging advice and just general care info and well they're face biters and I usually come in to be the jerk on the on the forum <laughs> and I'm like have you ever actually owned an ATB just out of curiosity you really everything you're saying is wrong so I don't know what the hell you're talking about but uh. The as far as the popularity, I, I think like you're saying, there were people, there's still the whole market out there that says they're um, they're the poor man's emerald and have a real negative opinion on them. And then there's people who are gotten into them and who are uh, I think feeling the love recently from the Facebook groups and the the um, Heinrichs forum. Uh, that's I think myself included. I think a lot of people have just kind of fallen off the forums recently, uh, all the forums that uh, in general I noticed just events have slowed way down. But uh, I think the Amazon Alliance page, that, that that forum was just awesome over the last, what, five, six years, what, how long ever it's been running, that uh, it, it's really, it really pumped the popularity way up there. I mean, just 
I, I think what it takes is just getting people to to have photos of good, clean, healthy, captive-born babies, throwing them up there, and, and what those adults look like from those babies, and and people, you know, handling their animals, pictures of people interacting with them without there being blood everywhere, and even the the, the people with that are getting bit, and it's you know it's no big deal and. I, there's you know the whole mystique there I think behind the how how baggy they are and all that and people are you know there's a weird I don't want to get into them because of that but then I do want to get in because of that kind of vibe out there depending on who you're talking to uh, but I think the just with exposure people are getting more into them just because they're they're seeing how awesome they are and you can't deny how how cool an Amazon is there's just no right. way and Baby pictures, I don't know that there's a cuter baby picture out there than a baby Amazon, especially if you get a good depth of field with the giant eyeballs and head coming at you and the little tiny body body behind it. You know, I've, I've got all my uh, my high school friends on my Facebook, and I just don't sit bother to segregate my photos. And I've got um, – and, it, and it's, it's true, I think, across the board that uh, women, girls, women – because um, I mean, I do lots of outreach stuff, and we have a big event we hold every year here called Reptile Fest in Chicago, where we it's six thousand general public coming in. There's not any reptile people at all in it, and and just doing our Junior Herp Society meetings. That the women and, and young girls are more open to snakes in general. And from my high school friends, I see that that the, I get girls commenting that, oh my god, that's the most that's the cutest thing I've ever seen from a snake, and I don't like snakes, but that's adorable, and I think that's, uh, that's right. a, a big outreach thing. Big eyes are cute. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've just, seen that I think, in my own family. I mean, I, I married a, a woman who was not, you know, my wife, Marissa, is not, um, she's always been a pet person, but she has not uh, been a, a snake person, per se, and, you know, um, same with my three stepdaughters and and the, the two youngest ones love snakes specifically Amazon Trevolas and my wife thinks they're awesome I mean, she thinks that they're cool doesn't mind them being in the house you know uh, tells people when we're out you know her friends you know they say oh I heard you guys have a snake she'll be like oh no 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 not one snake <laughs> she'll tell them you know exactly what's going on and you know isn't scared about it and isn't isn't afraid of it. I think that's really neat, you know, to to be bringing people in that would, would not typically, um, you know, go for that kind of thing. And Amazon tree boas seem to be like a species that does it. Yeah, absolutely. My my wife also is very happy to talk about our snakes. Um, the only people I ask her not to talk about is our neighbors because I'm in a condo and I just don't want that kind of headache again. Uh, right. Condo rules are weird. They can, you know, basically the rest of the condo can kick you out if they all get freaked out. And I don't want to find out if my neighbors are or are not snake people. <laughs> but yeah. pretty much everybody yeah. else, we we uh, we definitely preach to all, as much as we can. And it, it's it's all about ignorance, man. There's a lot of ignorance out there. And now Discovery Channel and Animal Planet are just making it even, making the battle even grander. So we have more ignorance to fight every day. So it it's good to talk as much as you can about any of the snakes, but Amazon's just make it uh 
the photos at least make it really easy. And that's actually what I, I usually flip up on my phone and pull up a baby picture and you know, explain to people. And I said my uh, my phone guy today, I was or yesterday actually, he was like, "So uh, your your emails, snakes unlimited." I'm like, "Yeah." So, so what is that? What do you, do you keep snakes? And he was real nervous. And I started talking and showing him photos, and he he, he really dug the Amazons too. Oh, cool. So I wanted to touch a little bit on on uh, your husbandry, like how you keep your Amazons, um, what what sort of cages you use, uh, types of perches, substrate, stuff like that. Well, um, I have Animal Plastic 322s. I've got Neodesha, the 222 cubes. I also use the Neodesha three-foot slant back, slant fronts. And I actually do have some of the Exoterras with ATVs in them and some Visions with ATVs in them. But the Visions and Exoterras, I I tend to uh, drop plastic over the top of the cages just to cut down the airflow. Uh, it's just too much. And uh, yeah. as far as ATVs go, I think I'm going to stop using the vision I have them in. Uh, my animals got sick this year. I'm also, I mean, I'm in Chicago, so we do have pretty cold weather and it gets kind of drafty. And a couple of my breeders this year ended up getting sick. Um, my vet was awesome and helped me. And after a month and a half of doing oral injections and shots in the, the front third and which actually, you know, stabbing a snake in the back with a needle with its its head, you know, you, you can't do the injection in the right spot without and hold its head at the same time. And I actually didn't take any bites from it. But, uh, yeah, I just, I don't think the, the visions are really, what's that? Uh, I was just saying, it's tricky, giving an animal. Yeah, well, I, yeah, well my, my point being that they, I didn't get bit. It, it's just, they are not... In my experience, at least, they are not the the bitey, bitey snakes. Everybody, I mean, if they're in the cage sitting on a on a branch and they see you coming, yeah, they'll they'll rear up and get defensive. But if you just reach in and grab them, they usually are pretty laid back, uh, or they'll strike at your other hand. But um, <laughs> the uh, but yeah, exoterras, I I, I do. Um, keep some of the juveniles in, and then I made some of those, I think both of you guys were on the pages, the the threads where we're talking about the ITSO cages, which are the storage oh, boxes yeah. from uh, Target. And right. I'm not really a fan of how I built my own. I did them a couple different ways, and I just couldn't really get them where I really, really like them. So right now, all the glass is held in place with... Uh, basically zip ties jammed between the glass to keep them from sliding open on me. They're definitely something, if you're going to make those, that you have to figure out a way to really secure the glass. But they're they're great on humidity, uh, so that is that is a bonus. And then with the yeah. juveniles, or like all the babies I have right now, I'm just, I walked into the snake room here to look at it. I have, eh, it's not really going to help, nine and a half cup storage boxes. Um, so the, I don't know if you guys have a store called GFS out there, Gordon Food Services. Uh, I'm not familiar with it. I'm not either. I've been no. living yeah. in Sacramento since like for six months. So 
I don't. Yes, I probably wouldn't be the best to talk to you about that. But well, uh, they they have these. Do I have a tape measure handy? They have these little Tupperwares that are probably just shy of a foot long, ten inches long by six inches deep, and about three inches tall. And they're what I said, nine and a half cups or something. But they're they're great uh, for babies. I initially tried to do bamboo sticks across them for perches, and the bamboo just all went moldy on me. So I I went back to the plastic, the green plastic uh, garden fencing, mm-hmm. uh, which everybody else seems to use as well. Grab that stuff from Home Depot. But I, I set the babies up in there with a little bit of the green fencing, and for a water bowl, I just went down to uh, Walgreens, and they've got the the bathroom dispenser for mouthwashing cups. Like when you're brushing your teeth, and you have little, there's some little dispenser where these little cups fit into. Uh, and they fit perfectly inside the cage, and the, the lid actually holds them to the floor. And so I just cut a little square out of the side of it so the snakes can access to the water. But it's uh, a tip-proof water bowl. And oh, uh, cool. just heat them from one side with side heating, and they're they're really good to go. Awesome. So it's just a question of whether or not you can find the the cage and the the, the water bowl that fit together like that. I just got real lucky here with the GFS. Yeah, I know Sterilite has some uh, has some has a new line of um, uh, tubs that come in all different sizes, and they have a like a light lime green locking handles on each side. Um, they're not. Yeah. They're. It's a different. I know they have them at Walmart. I've I've used them for from everything to you know. They I the first time I've seen them was this year. So I haven't used them for Amazons, but I've used them for some other species of snakes, and they seem to work really well. But you know that's cool. So you said that you put um, uh, tops over your uh, exos. So. Like plastic tops. I was wondering, are, what are you what are you using for heat? Are you heating the room, or are you using individual um, heat sources? And what are your temps? Uh, <laughs> heating is a that's always a fun hot topic. Uh, there's some guys <laughs> who swear by eighty what is it, eighty two degrees stable will keep right. all snakes happy. Uh, which sounds wonderful, but being a field herper, um, first and foremost, before anything else, I've I've gone out when I used to live down in Florida. I used to run down to the um, the cane fields, and we'd be flipping tin and carpet and board looking for snakes. And the only time you'd ever find anything under tin is when it was injured. So you'd have the king snakes yeah. that ran over by the the machinery, and they'd be underneath the tin, and that tin would be over a hundred degrees. So it's, I mean, it, and I've seen it in all my keeping time that when snakes need the heat, they go to the heat. So I, with that in mind, I always offer heat. Uh, I try to give them a stable temperature that's somewhere in the 80s if it, I can all pull that off. But I'm in Chicago and it gets cold and I'm in an old building, so I got draft, so it's not not as easy. That's where animal plastics work really well because they got the uh, quarter-inch thick PVC that just keeps heat really well and they heat up nicely and they're just a, a good stable uh, cage 
but the as far as the exos, I just run uh, side heat. I, I put them next to each other, and I've got a I think it's 12 inch a 12 inch wide section of heat tape running down between the the four gauge stack I have, and I put the um, perches on each side of the cage so they can go either perch on the side with the heat or on the other side. So they're and they're not always perching. Sometimes they're on the ground. Sometimes they're they're perching, but it seems to work well for me. Right. And that they, not getting regurgitated. They definitely getting, use the whole getting, cage. Yeah. Go ahead, sir. Well, that's the the stupid thing about cages. Uh, Heinrich used to love to post the picture from. Uh, um, I'm drawing a blank on his name now. Uh, Bob Henderson, Doctor Henderson's books, where it's the do you want a wide cage or a tall cage? And then the picture is in the tree. <laughs> and it's just like a, you know, whether it's two feet wide or two feet tall, it doesn't really matter because they're living in a whole freaking tree. So what's your point? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they'll use all of it no matter which way you put, you orientate it. Uh, and I, I see them tend to do really well with not so tall, but, but wide cages, like a four foot, wide cage is only 12 inches tall and they do well and if you take that cage and flip it on its end I think it's more about temperature and, and how you, how well you can keep their humidity up very nice yeah there's definitely a bunch of different orientations I, Dayton you keep yours in 24 inch cubes right um, I've got 24 inch cubes I've got 20 inch cubes with the bars cages and I do keep some in exo terrace as well Okay. With the top locked off. I used to keep mine in Exos, and I love Exoterras, but they definitely require some modification if you're not heating a heating a room. Um, if you're using individual heat source, you definitely have to modify it a little bit, unless you're using lamps. And I'm not a huge fan of lamps, but that's just See, me. I, I am a huge fan of lamps, but that's. <laughs> <laughs> I think everything's got its its place. It's just a matter of. Uh, it being used correctly, uh, right? And that's that's a beautiful. That's one thing that when you get to husbandry talks, and people always forget to, to remember on forums, and it's kind of like my my latest catchphrase when I'm doing talks with anybody is that there is no right answer for any setup because, like I said, right. I live in Chicago. You guys live in California. I live in Florida. You can set stuff up a tons of different ways, but depending on what's going on in your house, whether you have heating, air conditioning. Um, how what's your ambient temperature in the house outside humidity i mean there's so many factors that come into play that there's no way i can tell you how to set up a cage in your house and be right about it unless i just get lucky there's not a perfect cage out there yeah totally agree with that so, but it, people love to be right so there's always going to be people <laughs> telling telling you that your your setup's wrong um, I mean, and your setup can be wrong, absolutely, but uh, it, it's it's hard to hard to say it's right or wrong without seeing. You know, if there's problems, obviously there's, it's wrong. I I know Rico Walters used lamps for years for chondros and emeralds, and has you know obviously the guy produces the heck out of them. But you know, when I had my whole collection on lamps, I had a really hard time with the heat. You know, and, and I had and that and I, you know, obviously there's you know a dozen different ways to skin the cat, you know, and I'm not saying they're wrong for everybody because they obviously work right for, you know, work well for you. So I just, either maybe I didn't understand them right or I didn't have it 
you know, the insulation in my in my townhouse at the time, you know, was not, you know, adequate or, or whatever, but I, I struggled with them. But I know there's a lot of guys out there in different parts of the country that have totally, you know, slayed the dragon on reproducing these animals using using lamps. So Well, you know, my my favorite cage setup ever was for a corn snake in a fifty five gallon aquarium and uh I I'm very happy to say aquariums are not meant for keeping snakes, but that was flashing back to that point in my life, that was probably the best I've ever seen any snake do because it had the ability to get underneath the heat one end at 100 watts, and it was just cooking. And the the by the right branches, the right everything, and the other end of the cage would get down to the high 70s, and that thing just grew, grew, grew. It's like never looked back. It was probably the biggest and fastest I've ever seen a corn snake get big ever. And uh, I would never set that cage up again that way. <laughs> Just with what I have now, but uh, at the time, I think it was the best cage I've ever set up. So there's, it's just a matter of figuring out what works for you, and just watching the animals and how the animals react. Right. I mean, breeding a snake's not the hardest thing in the world to do. They, that's kind of what they want to do. If you don't breed it, then you've got problems. But uh, breeding it doesn't mean you're getting it right either. That just means you're you're not getting it terribly wrong. So whether or not Rico or myself or anybody's breeding anything doesn't really mean that their their setup's the best either. They're these things, especially with Amazons, what we have, we range from uh the southern tip of Central America all the way down to halfway down South America, across the whole continent. That's mm-hmm. just a huge range of Variability. Yeah. Right. Well, hmm. and there, all of our animals are coming out of two or three countries, and there's a huge range that we don't even see animals come from at this point. So, there's yeah, a, we have a lot to learn with these animals still. Right. I think all of us seen that the guy posting the picture of the Brazilian, basically adult. Halloweens. I think all of us would probably kill to get those too. I don't think we're ever going to see them in this country. Yeah. Yeah, I. I you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, I saw the pictures. Yeah, yeah, I I haven't seen the I haven't seen the pictures of them. Oh, they're stunning, man. It's like some dude oh. just and it was it, it was like right off one of the cities too, so he wasn't. He was right outside one of the cities, walked out, found a snake, brought it home, took some pictures, and the rest of the world just went, what? <laughs> and he's just like, oh, I don't know. In, just... It was in Brazil? Where did you say yeah. it was? Yeah. Um, I, I, I was it up was... in the north. I don't know. Maybe it's Manaus. That's like the biggest city in the in the Amazon or Belang. But Belang's kind of by the coast. Um, but I, I want to say it's like it was San Paul or something like that. Some follow? I don't know. Huh. Yeah, but yeah, it was just a it was a an adult sized Amazon, but with you know black and bright red banding on it. It was for what as close as I've ever seen to an adult Halloween, and he said, "No, they're kind of common here," and that's 
that's one thing that I think is just so amazing about Facebook right now is I right. I love my Amazons, but I really love my Susties and my Spilotes and just getting on to talk to guys in Central and South America where these animals occur and and they're they're, oh, yeah. they're kind of junk snakes, but there's these, you get all these different guys that are seeing all these different aspects of these animals that um, you can get such great information nowadays. It's amazing. Yeah, it's definitely bridging the gap. And so. some of these guys, they, they want to have a, a clue on captive care because they're having a real hard time with it because they're trying to do American setups, but a lot of, like a lot of the houses don't have air conditioning. So, you know, we're setting up our animals here with the base temperature of in the, you know, high 70s, low 80s, because that's comfortable for us, and their house is in the 80s. So when we, we're suggesting heat tape, they're they're just cooking their animals. So it's, uh, I had one poor kid in, um, where is, I think it was, I think it was Venezuela, which I don't know if they're allowed to keep snakes there or not. But um, <laughs> but anyway, he I, I was talking to him on Facebook, and he was having a hard time keeping his stuff alive. And he's like, man, I'm, I'm doing this, and I, I found uh, the, the heat bulbs, and I'm using this and that. And everything. I'm, uh, then I, I, I asked the basic question, you know, what's your room temperature like? And it was, he gave me in Celsius. I said, you're calculating on, the, on Google Celsius to, to Fahrenheit. And I'm like, holy crap, you're at 85 degrees. No heat. Don't put any heat on the damn things. <laughs> There's nothing that's going to live then. But he's he's trying to follow American American information, and it just doesn't work for him. Right. It's just a good example of where you're living. Uh, you know, you need to adjust your your husbandry to your location. Yeah, it was actually it was you know think more thing about it, it was ball pythons, and. Uh, he was just trying to figure out why he couldn't breed ball pythons when everybody in America could. I'm like, I'm the worst guy to ask about ball pythons, but I can try to help you out. And he gave me his info, and I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't be heating them at that point. And they're really heat resistant, so. Well, very, very cool. Um, I think we've got uh, Nick on the line. He's going to come on and talk about annulated. Um, but uh, before we bring him on, we'd kind of like to ask you a few, uh, a few, I guess, closing questions about, um, I guess, that we're going to ask everyone. But that uh, first one would be, um, what's your Amazon project centered around? Um, I do have my, my token tiger, because I think everybody that's breeding Amazons at all has to have at least a tiger project of some sort. Uh, but I'm just I'm just enjoying breeding these guys and seeing if what I uh, what I see in breedings from one pair help me figure out what I should expect from the next pair. And uh, I just, I'm just really kind of thrilled with the idea of trying to break down some of the you know the the, the answers to what do you get from breeding this to this kind of thing. Uh, I'm just interested in in trying different combos and seeing what I get out of the babies, or I get four babies rather out of the parents, <laughs> and just trying to fine tune some better looking babies, keeping back the best, and, and keep going from year to year and seeing with you know knowing where where my babies came from 100% because I've did it myself and maybe after a couple generations I can see that we are getting something going by doing certain combos. 
Pretty cool. Dayton, you got anything? Uh, yeah, what is your uh, favorite non-Corallus species of snake? Uh, well, the Sustis spilotes complex, I'll call it. They're um, they're really similar, and they're going to be really much more similar soon. But uh, they're just such a cool a colubrid. Again, South American, Central American, arboreal, but just different from Amazons, uh, but also kind of facing the same the same negatives. People think they're they're bitey, nasty snakes. Though I I would say that all of mine were are not so. But my my biggest female is up to around seven foot now, and she's she's taken to deciding everything that comes near the cage is in fact food. So she's earning her reputation now. But they're they're just they're similar to the Sustis bacillinotis. Um they're very similar to Amazon tree boas in that you just have no clue what you're gonna get from breeding them at this point. There's so little information out there. And then um to make matters even worse, they all hatch out looking like baby moss phase eyelash vipers and then transform into all different colors. And they 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 have a, a bigger color spectrum or color palette that they can come in than the Amazons do, so they're actually even a, a more colorful arboreal, which is just pretty unbelievable when you see all these babies popping out of the, Am of the Amazons. But yeah, that, that, yeah, they're they, definitely my... They're definitely my, hands down, my favorite species right now. Um, they're just... I, I can't... I, I failed at breeding them this year, which kind of makes it a, even that much more of a... Um, that much more of a I have to succeed with this project kind of vibe to it now. Right. So I think it'll even make the, the babies that much sweeter. Yeah, I've seen them. They're, they are gorgeous. Um, so uh, so you have Amazons then on the ground. I think I remember you posting a lit, uh, pictures of a litter. Um, we wanted to make sure that uh, people could get a hold of you if they're either looking for an Amazon or if they were looking for some of the other species that you're working with. Um, and so um, could you tell us uh, how to get a hold of you if anyone's looking? I have a horribly managed web page, snakesunlimited.com, that's not been updated for a very long time. But <laughs> my wife in the background, three years She's always trying to get me to update it. Um, but, yeah, it, that's that or Facebook. You know, just track me down, Jason Hood, on Facebook. Uh, right now I've got a bunch of carpet pythons, walmas, blackheads, some colubrids, and then 27 ATBs, nice. babies from this year that uh, um, I am only going to – I'm <laughs> I'm in a bad spot with the ATBs from this year because I – I kind of promised myself I'd only hold back two, but I'm going to sell two of my holdbacks from last year and uh, allow myself to keep four. But I, out of the 27, there's about 15 I want to keep. So <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I had some really beautiful babies this year, and uh, I got a lot of people trying to get me to sell some of the reds to them and some of the oranges. 
but I got to figure out what I want first, and then I'll I'll put them up once they're feeding and doing well. That is uh, that is the hard part. Oh, it's brutal, man. <laughs> you get you get ideas, and you see babies. You think, man, this would be a really cool project. I'll keep this one and this one and try them together in a couple of years, and then another litter pops out, and you're like, damn, keep that one and that one too, and pretty soon you're you've got too many of them. Yeah. Had, well, uh, go ahead. I had five females dropped me this year. My first one was slugs. Uh, the second one was a mixed batch of slugs, live and and uh, stills. And then I got a couple of good litters without slugs after that. And I think that's another thing we got to figure out is how to get the the breedings to go smoother and more successfully, and, and figure out why why we are getting slugs. I know uh, Mike Heinrich's got a great group of animals and he's been having real rough time the last couple of years breeding his. And I, I've done fairly well, but I've had my, my run of slugs and and stills as well. So there's there's definitely room to, for improvement uh, in my keeping style. I just got to figure out what it is and, and try to fine-tune it. Right. Well, we uh, I, I, we really appreciate you c- coming on, and I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. I was gonna say I've actually had better luck with my uh, my black-headed python project than I have with my Amazons. I mean, I've, I produced a ton of Amazons, but as far as success rate, my last couple of years with the blackheads have been 100, percent and my I'm not I'm not anywhere close to that with the ATBs. So. ATBs are definitely a challenging species to, to work with, which is a good thing. I think it's it. I I love corn snakes. I absolutely adore Okatee corns, but really bored with working with them. You know, they're just too easy. So I think uh, that's one of those things. Once you've had a few years doing this, it, it it's nice to have species. If you're not doing this for a living, which I'm not. By any stretch of imagination, it's it's nice to have a species that that does offer a challenge, and you get that you do have to figure things out. So I think that's a great thing with the ATVs, the the people that get into snakes because of the ball python movement and all that activity going on. You know, some of those people really just have a fascination with snakes, and because you're they're everybody shoving ball pythons down their throat, they go that route. And uh, I talked to a lot of people who get bored with that, and they're looking for other options and things that they can do that don't just involve, you know, going for the next biggest morph. And uh, I think ATBs are a great spot for those people like that that want to challenge and want to see something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Um, I don't want to cut you off, but I want to bring uh, bring Nick on and, and get him on for a little bit to talk about annually tree boas. So, um, if you'd like, you're welcome to hang out with us. Um, if you uh, need to bail, I know it's it's kind of late for you. Um, we totally appreciate it, and and uh, we'd love to have you have you on again uh, later on. Um, yeah, no, more I'll, I'll definitely hang on for a little bit. I'm gonna probably mute mute my phone and find out from my wife what I'm allowed to do. <laughs> I might <laughs> I might drop good. off with you guys, but I'll I'll message you on Facebook if I drop off. Well, if, if for all those listening, if anybody's looking for some uh, for some solid uh, captive born and bred, you know, uh, Amazon tree boas, be sure to check Jason out on Facebook. 
um, or if you're looking for some of the Australian species that he named, um, uh, be sure and uh, and hit him up on Facebook because sounds like he's got some of those as well. Let's go ahead and bring Nick on and um, get this started talking about some annulated tree bullets. Hey, Nick. What's going on, ladies? <laughs> Doing well. <laughs> Doing well. Uh, good to it's hear. It's a learning process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, You get more comfortable with it as time goes on and stuff. It's basically just talking to your buddies about snakes on the phone. Yeah, that's... It it started out kind of, I'm not gonna lie, I was sweating bullets because like, we <laughs> had a hard time getting our our. Uh, it, for some reason, it I was thinking that it was gonna start differently than it did, and um, <laughs> with the way that with the, with uh, you the, gotta the explain mode it of, to me, man. I've been there. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know all about it. I, I was like, That's holy funny, crap, uh, I don't know if they can hear us or like for why. Uh, what's going on? I was a little uh, late getting, I didn't listen to, I listened to like the last 20 minutes. Uh, it's my seven-year-old's birthday today, so we were blowing out candles and having cake and stuff. But it's kind of funny to touch on something you were just talking about with them that, uh, you know, you mentioned you know, there's more than one way to do things, and that's, you know, absolutely true and everything. And it's it's like the species that some people have a really hard time with or other people are really easy and vice versa. Like, he's talking about how with the Hortolanus, like having a lot, you know, kind of a, a rough road and like, I don't think I've ever even seen a slug from a Hortolanus. I don't think I've ever had a female not have a perfect litter pretty much every single time I've ever tried. I have like a, there's other species I've just, I've done terrible with that other people, you know, or have, great success with and it just i don't know whether it's something about everybody's individual maintenance or you know or any number of other factors but for some reason that's one that's super easy for me but you know i can't breed a savu python to save my life you know and, uh, <laughs> and all of my friends seem to have no problem with that one but for some reason you know it's just i don't know what it is about the you know could be any number of things i suppose but it's i don't know like that one i that one's easy i take that one for granted but other things that other people He's talking about black-headed pythons. That's not an easy species to breed. I mean, consistently, blackheads are you know among the harder pythons to reproduce. But uh, but uh, no problems there. But uh, the hortolanus are giving them the trouble. But uh, just goes to show you, yeah. I guess it's uh, everybody's experience are different, and it also can kind of turn around on a dime real fast too. Uh, but uh, so you guys want to talk can about annulated tree boas, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're we're awesome. stoked to have somebody on that's uh, that's got some some experience with them. I don't understand for the life of me why everybody who's into Corallus doesn't have a whole pile of these things. It's like the one tree bow that genuinely doesn't seem to want to kill you. I mean, sure, most of the Corallus they're not as bad as their reputation, you know, kind of presumes and stuff, and they're not really seek or destroy kind of snakes anyway. They're not scrub pythons, for God's sakes, but, uh, you know, they're not bad, but, I mean, annulators are generally really are pretty laid back. I mean, they're really, uh, really pretty well docile uh, for the most part and stuff, and I just don't understand why they're not uh, more popular and stuff, but I don't know. I have a passion for... How big of a group are you working with, Oh, one pair at the moment. I had, uh, I had a few others, and uh, I've had others over the years and stuff, but there was a period in time right after the economy kind of went in the crapper some years back that I had to sell off some of my adults because it looked like my wife might get laid off and things got pretty dicey there financially, so I had to part with some of my group uh, and stuff then 
nothing ended up happening, and then I couldn't get get those snakes back, of course, because you can't exactly find captive bred adult annulated very often. Um, but yeah, so I'm down to a pair of adults and a pair of sub adults that I produced and stuff. So, but they tend to mature a little bit slower. They're definitely mature. They're slower, more slowly growing, uh, mature a little bit later. So it's not uh, it's not like Hortolanus where you can literally they'll breed. Even the females can breed at 18 months old and they grow like weeds. It's a, a little bit more time invested. It's not quite as bad as breeding tortoises, but it's a little bit slower than breeding the other Corallus. So. Uh, right. So in that regard, it takes a while to build a group up. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I mean, I've been poking around with these guys for almost ten years and stuff. So uh, and even uh, they reach? what? I was going to say, at what age do they reach sexual sexual maturity? You know, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's hard to put it. You know, with any kind of metric about snakes. Uh, you know, you read all kinds of things, but a wise old uh, herper once told me that snakes don't read books. So there's always the exception to the rule. In my experience, it does seem to be more like a four-, five-, and six-year-old kind of a situation with them, uh, as opposed to other crowds, which will typically breed younger. Um, they, I mean, I have a male that uh, – uh, my original group, I had 1.2 that turned out to be 0.3. So I had like three, but I didn't realize that until years later. So I'm sitting on three adult females. Uh, and, you know, obviously a whole lot of nothing was happening with that. And they were four years old at that point, so I had to find a male. So I got an orange phase male from uh, Paul Bradshaw. I was one of the only guys that breeds them with consistency, although I will say it is probably cheating if you live in the Florida Keys. That seems to be an unfair advantage to me, but a uh, real nice guy. Sent me a little uh, newborn male, uh, orange phase. Uh, and so I you know, got him up to more or less breeding size in a couple of years, but you know, nothing happened, and then three years came and nothing happened and really wasn't until about five years I started seeing him take any interest and stuff and then about six years he started breeding like crazy and then you know now he's seven years old and then I get some babies out of him so it did take a it 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 seems that age is a bigger factor it's not just a a function of size like with some species you know once they're big enough for the you know to get the job done they typically get the job done Uh, these guys age seems to be a, a definite factor because they were all, I mean, that snake hasn't grown in years. He was the same size when he was three and a half as he is now at eight and a half years old. You know, <laughs> he hasn't gotten any larger, but he's uh, just right. gotten more mature, I guess. Um, but yeah, so a little bit, a little bit more patience required, probably. So where, where exactly do annulated tree boas come from? Uh, I guess in the wild. Well, I guess it depends on what you call an annulated tree boa. I mean, you've got, I mean, it's a. There's a South American population and a Central American population uh, that appear to be disjunct uh, and stuff. I believe the South American population in Ecuador may or may not be its own species. I think the name Blomberguy was, uh, you know, designated for that population, but I know subsequent uh, peer-reviewed papers and stuff that have come out tend to not use that name, so I'm not sure exactly the status of that, but uh, you do have the two populations uh, no one has the South American ones, the Ecuadorian ones, anyway. Uh, so, for practical intents and purposes, you know, anybody with an annulated tree bow, they're all the Central, in the hobby anyway, they're all the Central American form, which are, you know, all through Costa Rica. They do range into Guatemala a bit and stuff. Uh, but, yeah, no, they're, they're great. I was actually uh, lucky enough to be in their natural habitat a number of years ago and spectacularly unsuccessful at finding any. But uh, as is. <laughs> 
I'm like, I'm the like world's worst well-traveled field herper. I've been all over the world <laughs> looking for all sorts of things and found very, very little. Uh, I'm like, in fact, if you wanna, if you wanna go on a great field or herping trip and see nothing, just take me with you because I'm <laughs> with a. I had an Australia trip a couple of years ago that we did really well, but with that it was almost an anomaly because I'm the, you know, even though I know everything that's supposed to be there, I know where it should be and the right. I can put. I just can't see it. I'm probably walking right by them. But uh, there's almost like a, like good field herpers almost have an intuition about this stuff or something or I don't know, but. It's more to it than just putting yourself in the right place in the right time and stuff and looking. you got to almost – I've been with some good field herpers almost had a sixth sense about that kind of stuff, and I don't. But uh, – <laughs> Well, but, we uh, should own it, no, so. <laughs> Yeah, I, I suck. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Probably the only reason I found all the stuff in Australia this last time is because I was with other people who were, you know, better at that than me. If I'd been by myself, it'd probably just been, you know, nothing as usual. Uh, well, I, I've been to Australia twice, and the first time I only found one snake. <laughs> and then the second time I was with some other herpers, I found a bunch of stuff. So the time I was by myself, I just the one uh, in a month of touring around the country. Um, so, But, uh, yeah, I'd love to find uh, Corellis. I've looked for uh, Annulatus in, uh, in uh, extreme southern Guatemala unsuccessfully. Uh, and I've looked for uh, Cordelanus and uh, Caninus in Peru uh, very unsuccessfully spectacularly unsuccessful there as well so <laughs> three attempts and uh strike one two and three so i'll persevere though it is you do get a little bit more respect for the snakes well you know you've been to spend time in south america when you know looking at pictures of rainforest habitat and what you imagine that to be like it's a whole lot different when you're there and you can just feel the heat and the humidity oh, and you kind yeah. of get a, a greater sense for these places and stuff i mean it is um you know very different than looking at pictures. Uh, very get off the plane so. and you can just feel the that. air just sucked out of your lungs almost. It's just so hot and humid. You just, whew. You just start <laughs> to suffocate. Oh, and I'm a man of large appetite myself, so you know us fat guys tend to sweat a lot anyway. So you can, you know, <laughs> it's uncomfortable pretty quickly. But, uh, no. but now I've been working with the uh, annulatus for, geez, probably a little over a decade now. Uh, very slow. I mean, I would love to add more to my group, but it's, you know, it would literally, there's so few captive breedings that they don't want to just keep, you know, adding the same exact animals, you know, cousins and brothers and sisters and, you know, closely related animals. Having other animals that are uh, not related or less related seems to be difficult to get. Uh, Occasionally you see very sporadic, you'll see uh, the odd import and stuff, but it's really hit or miss and stuff. Uh, and sometimes you who all's working with them? Who all? Yeah, who, I don't. Who I don't know. You know, I mean, I mean, I've. Uh, I mean, I'm primarily an Australian python breeder, but I've had this kind of uh, been moonlighting with the Corallus for a number of years now. <laughs> Next to the, you know, the uh, the Morelia genus and the Australian stuff, I would the Corallus is another group that I've always had a kind of a long term interest in and stuff, but. Uh, I've kind of just dedicated myself to working with the non-green ones. I don't ever, <laughs> I've never kept a base in emerald. I, I kept the northern ones for a little while, but I really only keep the, try to keep just the weird ones. I do keep, you know, Hortolanus and stuff, but, uh, uh, you know, mainly now it's just Freschenbergeri and, and the Annulatus, uh, two species that a lot of herpers don't even seem to know, realize exist. 
right. Yeah, uh, those, those two are fairly uncommon. How many? Yeah, uh, I mean. Lit- go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to ask how many litters of uh, annulated have you produced over the years? Uh, just once last year, after nine consecutive years of trying, this is, and I've talked to other people since then. Here's how uh, uh, they're kind of sneaky about this. Uh, the year before last, I saw, I don't know, 16, 17 copulations. I pretty much quit writing it down. It was almost every day. Uh, it was just so common, it just became like, oh, they're breeding again. And then nothing happened. And then this last year, in 2012, I see absolutely nothing, and then I get a litter. And I literally, I do this ritual of, you know, defeat every year where I will pull, you know, female out and kind of hold her up. But if you hold a female snake that's gravid up, you know, you kind of grab them by the first third of the body and let the rest of the body, their body weight will kind of pull them kind of straight under gravity. And you can kind of see if they're kind of getting pudgy in all the right places. And I literally, like two weeks earlier, I pulled that female annulated out, held her up. It's like, ugh, defeat again, you know. Strike number nine or whatever for this, for you, you know, you know, I'll have to wait another year and you know, strike out again next year. And then two weeks later, there's babies. Uh, you just completely looked at a you know late-term female and uh, no idea. They apparently, you know, if you have like a Hordolanus, which is you know the closest kind of, you know, thing we'd have experience with and everything, it's really obvious when they're full of babies. I mean, really obvious. Um, they, you know, they look terribly uncomfortable. You can literally count the my. You, you, I don't have very huge female horlanos, but you can usually count the babies just looking at them. You can just count the lumps and know about <laughs> how many babies there are in there. But this was like, you know, I definitively said there will be no annulated trepos this year, and then there they are. So shows you what I know. How many did you get? It was just a litter of three, no slugs, which is, but they're they're about exactly the size of Hortolanus babies for those that have bred Hortolanus. So they're really, they're no bigger, no smaller, about exactly the same size and stuff. In fact, I was so convinced I wasn't going to get Annulatus, I thought I had a litter of Hortolanus that had migrated into the wrong enclosure. Uh, <laughs> I have this other problem, and I need, I, keep thre- I need to do something about it, but uh, my arboreal enclosures work great unless you have litters of really skinny uh, arboreal snakes that you know, give live birth, in which case they tend to get out. Because they're so, they can even squeeze out of the gap at the top there. They can, there's, because there's just a little tiny piece of spaghetti anyway. I mean, they can, so usually you'll find a few in the cage, and there's always a couple that are kind of on the, on the run and stuff. And I thought it was a litter of Hortolanus. I'm like, why is this nearly solid black Hortolanus? I'm like, that's weird. Because I don't, I don't make, I don't ever produce garden phase Amazon. I was, it took me a second. I'm like, I just couldn't believe what it was. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I, you know, then there were the two, you know, red orange ones, and it was pretty obvious. But it was, uh, uh, I was just so convinced it wasn't going to happen, and stuff. And I, I thought it was weird that I'd produce a dark Hortolanus because I, I don't ever produce. Uh, you, it, your previous guest had touched on, you know, kind of noodling around to different pairings and combinations, trying to figure out how this stuff works, and. Uh, uh, from my experience, you can basically weed out all the dark color phases of in Hortolanus over generational, generation after generation. You can effectively weed out garden phase Amazons and produce only whatever color you want. Uh, I've only ever produced one Halloween phase one time in one litter five years ago, and that's multiple litters every year for more years than I can count. And there's never ever any dark phase animals. Uh, this year, I've got. I mean, they just. If you breed bright-colored animals to bright-colored animals whose grandparents were bright-colored animals, whose great-grandparents, you get four or five generations removed from anything dark, you'll just weed those genes out. 
little by little, it just. Uh, I can't remember the last thing I produ- I can't remember the last Amazon I produced that was not orange or yellow, or yellow and orange at the same time. They're all yellow and orange, or you know, solid orange, solid yellow, or yellow and orange together. Pretty much, that's all. Like that's all. I almost can't. I almost kind of want to produce something different. It's like I can't not produce that because I've just been holding these things back for generations and stuff, and there just isn't any all the way back to the wild. That's all there has been. Uh, and you can you can weed those with polyallelic traits. You can kind of do that. You can uh, over yeah. time you can weed out the ones you don't want, and that's all there is left is you know some combination of things you find desirable and stuff. I suspect the same will be. It's hard to say with like annulated that really only come in two flavors, uh, you know, kind of orange and chocolate, uh, more or less. Uh, though I suspect you know it'll be largely the same with them as well. It's just who has a, you know, who's got who's been breeding them for five or six generations for one for that specific reason, you know. Uh, but, uh, I suspect over time you could focus it on just the color phase you wanted. Is there a certain color phase that's more desirable than the other one with annulatus? Uh, yeah, everybody wants to. The, they come, they change color. I mean, most boa snakes can kind of change color from light to dark uh, to some extent. Uh, I've, annulatus can change color dramatically, like an anole, pretty much. Uh, you have like the brown, black ones, and you've got the kind of orange and pink ones. Uh, those dark ones can be anywhere from like pale gray on gray to dark chocolate brown. It's like a, they're like a freaking anole or something. They can change that much. Uh, seasonally, I've noticed a change. You know, when I cycle my snake building and everything, and you, know, you get the cooler months, that will affect their their overall color, which obviously is an adapt adaptation to absorbing more heat more effectively. If you're darker, you're more better at absorbing heat. Uh, also, from day to night, uh, depending on mood, sometimes it seems random, but they can change way more than any other Corrales that I've ever seen. And I've kept just about, you know, I've had experience with a lot of that stuff, and it's pretty dramatic. And stuff. That's crazy. Uh, the orange ones are the orange ones can be anywhere from like pink and gray to like orange, kind of a peach color, uh, almost like a burnt red at times. Uh, sometimes bordering on brown, but it's the same snake, just depending on what its mood is and what its body temperature is and, you know, perhaps other factors we don't really understand. But it's it's quite striking just how much they can change color um, and stuff. And they really seem to be the only, you know, corral I'm aware of that can do that. I mean, like I said, I maintained a few emeralds for a number of years, never really tried to breed them, just kind of had them and enjoyed them in a big naturalistic cage. And they were green every single day. Uh, they never, they were never not green with white on them. Uh, you know, the, all the Hortolanus of which I've produced a boatload and have quite a number of them now, they, they're pretty much the same every day. But the uh, same with the Rischenbergeri. Uh, but those Annulatus really have this unparalleled ability within that genus anyway to change color. In fact, I don't know within all bowed snakes. I mean, I really, I mean, even among the pythons, there's a few that can do that to a, a good extent, but nothing like it, the Annulatus that I've seen. But, uh, you know, those annulatus yeah, are really pretty, can. the annulatus are pretty divergent. Uh, you know, uh, if you look at, there's a great paper that came out uh, just this year, kind of a molecular uh, phylogenetic paper on the whole Corral's genus, kind of explaining the, and teasing apart the relationships of what's related to what and when they all diverged and everything. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. Uh, most notably, I thought, was that uh, annulatus split off from all the other Corralis 35 million years ago. That's a long time. They've, so they've been on their own kind of separate trajectory for 35 million years. Um, that's a 
quite a quite a bit of time, and the northern and southern annulated split from each other ten million years ago, and that's you know that's longer than the hominid lineage that we belong to has even existed. That's just how long the two annulated groups have split apart. So, I mean, that's it's no wonder that they're that they're. Yeah, it turns out the divergences within the whole Corallus genus are really really profound. Uh, the most basal member of the group, you know, the first species that really come into existence or split off from the rest. Uh, is actually the emeralds, Caninus, uh, your northern emeralds, 50 million years ago. Wow. Which is just an unfathomable amount of time. Uh, What you've got is a situation... I can send it to you. I collect scientific papers and stuff. Uh, I'm a world-class nerd, so uh, that's what I like to read. But, uh, yeah, 50 million years ago, emeralds split off. uh, uh, Annulated to the net era, then uh, Cropani, which is actually... The next is split off a few million years later. Then Annulatus at 35 million years. Then everything else is more closely related and stuff. Uh, right. The, uh, the Hortolanus complex, which encompasses, you know, obviously Hortolanus, Cook Eye, Grenade Ensis, Russian Burger Eye, all of that group kind of exploded. There was a bit of an explosion of diversity about 10 million years ago. So everything else, the other lineages split off a long time back, and then about 10 million years ago, what's now that Hortolanus complex starts to diversify and stuff. And then, uh, you know, and then there are South American group of snakes that only migrated into Central America a million and a half years ago, because that's when the Isthmus of Panama, when North and, North and South America right. were, you, you know, joined up and that Isthmus formed about, a, you know, just about two million years ago. So the genetic evidence shows that these guys moved in when they could. You know, as soon as that land bridge was formed, they moved North into Central America just a million and a half years ago. So right, but well, uh, yeah, well, that's the the mid Eocene period, fifty million years ago. That's how far back the Corallus genus goes. It just shows that when you look at like how you know how different these guys are from everything else, it's because they've literally been in they've been separated from all other boas for fifty million years, which is a crazy, crazy amount of time. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's uh, snakes are kind of one of those things that doesn't change much though. They uh, they figured out what worked a long time ago, and if it ain't broke, they don't fix it. So, you know, 50 million years ago, you'd probably find something that looked fairly similar to what you'd look expect to find today. It doesn't, you know, in mammals that would be a very different story probably, but uh, in snakes, right. uh, it's a little bit slower. To, at least on the genetically, they change, but you know, on the outside, what we see, the phenotype, uh, not not nearly so much, or not nearly as fast anyway. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I find all that stuff super interesting. What what size are annulated in comparison to um, some of the other? Like, how big do they get? I mean, I I've never even seen They're them in small. person. I mean, my I I tend to like to keep my snakes small because just uh, in, in a general sense, regardless of what the species is, uh, whether it's you know annulated tree boas or carpet pythons or people or whatever. Uh, big, giant, heavy, fat things don't live very long. Little, tiny, skinny things live forever. Uh, that's, you can typically, that's, you know, uh, you can, as a generality and stuff, uh, the key to longevity is calorie restriction. doesn't matter if you are a mouse or a person or an elephant or whatever. Uh, you know, it's kind of the old expression, the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long, and that's true. Look at humans. Who are the longest-lived people in the world? People live in, like, Okinawa, little, tiny people. Who are... Look how long professional wrestlers live. They're all dead by the time they're 50. Look how long the average NFL football player lives. They don't live very long. Big, giant people don't live long. Little, tiny people live a long time. 
And the same is true for snakes. We've all known people that fed their snakes way too much. And did they have very many old snakes? No, because their snakes tend to die when they're seven or eight years old because you burned them up. Uh, and that's just so I tend to keep things on the smaller side, feed a little more sparingly. I'm not trying to get rich breeding tree boas uh, and stuff. I kind of enjoy having them around. I'd rather them live a normal life expectancy. You know, most of these snakes live should live a very long time, but you never see very many geriatric snakes, do you? Uh, you know, I've got a lot of 20-year-old, I've got several 20-year-old snakes, uh, various species and stuff. When I tell people that, they just seem shocked that you have a snake that's 20 years old. It's like, well, they should probably all live to about 30 or 40 years, but most people kill them well before they're 10 years old. Uh, and the number one reason is, you know, uh, we overfeed them. We make things, tend to make things far bigger than they naturally would get. And, uh, and uh, you know, it shortens life expectancy typically, so... I keep mine a little small. Right. My eight-year-old or nine-year-old male, he's probably about nine years old now. He is, oh, I don't know, maybe 450, 500 grams soaking wet. Uh, I think of everything in mass, not in length, because I'm never really stretching them out trying to measure them. Uh, females definitely probably about, you know, 1,100, 1,200 grams. But she's over 10 years old and stuff. Uh, but they, uh, So would you feel age is definitely more important than size? With these guys, as far as uh, yeah, they don't. Goes. Well, by the time it would be hard to, unless you just starve them to death. I mean, by the time they get old enough, they'll accidentally be big enough because if they don't breed till they're, you know, by the time something is five or six years old, it'll accidentally be that big. You know, right. even with yeah. uh, it, it seems, but uh, you'd have to really, you know, hold out the food. Uh, they're good eaters. Uh, uh, even getting the babies going was uh, not that bad. Uh, just found that they wanted to eat larger prey. They're, you know, the size of, you know, you think they, oh, they need the pinky, and they don't want to eat a pinky, but give them, like, a peach fuzzy, and they just took them on the first try. It's like they want something bigger. Kind of reminds me of carpet pythons, another group I do a lot of work with, and that they tend to habitually want to swallow the largest thing they can choke down as opposed to something easy. Uh, why that is, right. I don't know, but I found that to be with those, and they, you know, never look back. They started them on peach fuzzies, which, you know, they're about, like I said, about the size of Hortolanus babies anyway, so. But the bigger prey definitely got a, uh, a much better uh, response out of them stuff so uh i find it to be a little shyer snake uh so i know i'm looking at the clock i know we don't have a whole lot of time left uh you know you'll see your if you keep like a lot of people you know you listen to your show i assume are you know aficionados of hortolanus and uh and emeralds primarily and stuff and those you know emeralds don't move they're basically you know just, they're extremely sedentary uh hortolanus move around uh, much much more i mean i catch mine moving around at night and you know and actually you know actively basking and doing stuff uh the annulatus are a shyer animal in my experience uh they tend to they like a good hide spot or they they want to get wedged in between something uh and they will sit there for a very long time so much sometimes you have, sometimes have to move the hide to make sure they're still in the cage and stuff they uh they're they're not very active uh and they are and they are uh much more shy and stuff, but they're really docile. I mean, you can reach in there and grab them, and with no fear of getting bit, which is refreshing. <laughs> does, your, uh, does your husbandry differ at all with uh, annulatus as compared to hortolanus? No, not at all. I mean, it's like that doesn't mean that my husbandry approach is necessarily right. I mean, I've I've never had one die in all these years. Every one I've ever had is still alive. Even after all this time, uh, so I've never had one get sick, never had one die. Uh, I have reproduced them, albeit it took me a good long while, but sometimes those things do uh, and stuff. And they are literally just in the same bank of uh, enclosures right next to all the hortolanus. Uh, 
and stuff. What, I keep what them down. What plants do you keep, try and, to keep in, in humidity and stuff? Uh, I have a snake building, so the whole building is, I heat the entire building, so everybody in the building is more or less within the same temperature range. Uh, I, there's a bit of a vertical temperature gradient in that, you know, closer to the ceiling, things tend to be warmer, and closer to the floor, things tend to be cooler. So I'll kind of mm-hmm. arrange things uh, with that in mind and stuff. And in that regard, the hortolo- the uh, uh, annulatus are uh, closer, a little further down, uh, closer to the floor than the top. But, uh, no, I mean, I keep an ambient air temperature in the building about 80 to 82. It does fluctuate. In the summertime, it's very difficult to keep it under 83 or so and stuff. Uh, yeah, they all have a basking light. They have a little halogen lamp they can get. Good and warm if they want. I've never. I don't think I've only in all these years ever seen a couple of times a female basking ever. They really don't bask. Uh, very. I mean, I, I firmly believe that it's important to give them the option. Uh, if they don't want to use it, they don't have to use it. It's very small and isolated, so it doesn't do a whole lot to heat the rest of the enclosure. If they want to actively go up there and get under that lamp and get a little warmer, they have the option of doing that. Uh, they rarely, rarely do. I've seen hortolanus and stuff bask much more so uh, and stuff, particularly when gravid and things. But uh, these guys will just, you give them a hide spot, they're pretty much, you know where they're going to be 95% of the time, uh, <laughs> wedged in there. Uh, uh, so not the most active snakes. So what what attracts you to them more so than some of the other, or most of the other, if not all, of the other corallus species? scarcity i just like things that nobody else has it's like because they're it's the challenge because they're hard to get therefore i want to get them because they're hard to breed therefore i want to breed them there's a lot of people i mean you know i mean you guys are tribo aficionados obviously you started a radio show uh you know a hugely disproportionate amount of the attention and energy and cave space uh you know as far as this genus goes to the green snakes goes to those the two green species, and probably at the expense of the other species. I mean, even people, there are people who keep emeralds who don't even realize how many species of corallus there are. I mean, in a hobby, there's there's all these other cool snakes that nobody really knows about and stuff because they, right. they don't get much press. So that alone, and they're really neat. So that's why, you know, uh, I tend to focus on the Russian burger and the annulatus and stuff. I do like the hortolanus a lot because they are easy to breed and, you know, it is nice to get some reward for one's efforts every so often. Uh, the others are more difficult, for sure, uh, and stuff. But it would be sad if nobody was trying to breed these things and stuff. Uh, it is amazing. You know, there pe- there's a lot of species, and these guys, the Hortolanus, uh, not Hortolanus, but Russian Burgeri and Annulatus, probably more so, would fall into this category where there's species that we could conceivably lose in the hobby altogether because nobody bothers to breed them. They're rare. Annulat- if you were to go back in time 10 years ago, 20 years ago, annulated tree bows were rare then. They're rare now. There are not any more of them now than there ever have been. They're just perpetually, there's like just enough produced to keep the population perpetually rare and stuff. Because you don't ever seem to make, uh, there's some species that are just forever going to be rare, it seems, and they're definitely in that group. And I just... You know, we've, there are a few species of python in particular that we've lost in the hobby because not because they got outlawed, not because you could, because nobody bothered, because nobody bothered, nobody could be bothered to breed them, because they're too busy chasing after the latest greatest ball python or this and that. And I say that as uh, I breed ball pythons on occasion too, so it's not like I'm anti ball python. Everybody likes to 
that's everybody's herpetocultural whipping boy, the ball python and the, and the ball python market. But, I mean, it is, there's some truth there with all the cage space and all the emphasis and all the effort and money starts going towards things like that, which, frankly, are trivial. I mean, the latest, greatest color morph of some really super common, easy-to-breed species, it takes away from the amount of cage space and finances and effort there are to put into rare, more difficult-to-obtain, difficult-to-breed species. And so we kind of, those things take a back seat while people chase after, you know, ball pythons or whatever and stuff. So I want to always, uh, I try to, and I have a lot of morphs and I have a lot of a lot of things, but I do think it's important as herpers to try to, devote a little cage space to things that are rare or less common and stuff. And if everybody did a little more of that, they wouldn't be quite so rare or uncommon. Uh, right. So. I think uh, that it's, And they're uh, awesome snakes. Can, yeah. I think that people would really catch on to that. And and I think their popularity would, you know, in the next five to ten years hopefully grows. Well, do you think, uh, just like success. a... How many herpers do you know that have a hundred snake collection? I know millions of herpers that have a hundred snakes or more. If all those herpers had just like, okay, I'm going to pick four cages out of this hundred and keep something weird or obscure or rare, there'd be a lot more rare and obscure snakes being produced. It's like when it's a hundred snakes and they're all ball pythons or boa morphs. They're all just easy stuff. I mean, it's like we're not really pushing the hobby forward so much. We're just kind of stuck in neutral. We're just, hey, more color morphs. You know, I mean, it's, that's neat, yeah. and I do that too, but there's more to the hobby, I would like to think, than just that. And stuff. So, right. Some of these rare species, uh, I think if people got their hands on them, would really, really like them. Right. And stuff. So. Well, so we're trying to uh, say, Nick. That's my soapbox on uh, breeding rare species for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Hey, Nick, this is Jason. If oh. uh makes you feel any better, I got oh. most of my my 100 cage uh, collection as weird and obscure species. <laughs> that's all, that's as it should be. See, that's uh you're talking about spelotes. I mean, it doesn't get any weirder or more obscure than that. I mean, that's I mean, that's well, awesome. The, I mean, the spelotes and the susties are both very similar, and they're they're both really uh, just out there for. But they're like you said, they're they're animals that should be in captivity. They're really really cool animals, and they they fit everything we want in the hobby as far as variability and. Uh, you know, ease of keeping and ease of feeding and all that, but they people just there was other things they wanted to try colors at the time, so they, people quit exporting them from the country that they could export them from, and everything shut down. And thankfully, uh, somebody got the right permit system together in Costa Rica to get them back out again. Because I like I've, I'm talking about my my Susties and. There, I talked to an old timer, and he's like, "Yeah, I don't know why you're so excited about that. We were doing that 20 years ago." It's like, right, but in the meantime, it shut down, and no one had any, so it isn't wasn't something that was that, lost to the hobby. Isn't it sad that 20 years later you have to basically reboot the whole thing and start over? Something that was established then gets lost and has to get reestablished because, and the only reason is because nobody could be bothered to do it. It's, eh, I'll just go do this other thing, you know, or whatever. It's like. I don't know. That's to me. That's a bit sad. It's. Uh, I'm like I've been waiting for years to find a New Guinea water python, and I'm the only. I'm apparently the only guy who wants one. The only guy, uh, because you can you can import wild caught New Guinea wa- uh, water pythons, 
but no one does because no one wants them. So even though they're legal to collect, there's a quota that never goes filled because nobody ever bothers to import them because there's zero commercial demand for a species that's rare and was imported. It was even was bred and established that is now just basically gone just because it's a brown snake and nobody cares uh, and stuff. And that's, I don't know. I mean, everybody should have a brown snake in their collection <laughs> or something. Uh, I just I just hate to think that our hobby is getting to a point where we only value things based on the number of mutant genes it carries, you know. And that's kind of the morph thing has gone a little too far. It's almost like we there are people who just do not care about anything unless it's a mutant. It could be the most beautiful wild type thing you could ever imagine. It doesn't matter because it's not a morph. It's like this kind of almost fixation on that side of it, and it's like at the expense of everything else. It's you know, you know. Uh, it's you know you see it in in every sector of the hobby. It's like you can't just appreciate the natural beauty of anything unless it's some sort of a mutant uh, and stuff. And you know I think these uh I mean there are a few Corallus morphs I guess, but really you know is it an improvement on anything? It's just different. Uh, and right. stuff. I don't think they I don't think they need to be improved by mut- color mutations. I think they're just about perfect the way they are. No. So. I will mess around with all the morphs as well, I suppose. But I mean, why not? But I, it's you know, it's uh, because I have a lot of snakes. So I guess I can do that. But I mean, there's no, uh, you know, the natural forms will always be uh, uh, tops in my book. I guess everything else is kind of just a sideline. Well, guys, we're kind of getting close to uh, time running out. I think we just got a couple more minutes left. I wanted to go ahead uh, before um, we get into. Uh, everything, uh, Nick, you've already kind of hit on uh, one of our questions. We usually ask people at the end is, you know, what what their favorite, you know, corral species is. You've already talked about annulateds being uh, top on your list. Um, what is your favorite uh, non-native species? Non-corralis species? Non-native snake species, sorry. Or non-snake species, I'm sorry. Non-snake species? Yeah, what's your favorite non-snake species for all that? We know we got some people out there that are into some of the four-legged reptiles. So kind of. Oh, are you talking about reptiles? I was going to say my dog. Reptiles, yeah. You're talking about a yeah. non-snake reptile. That's all different. <laughs> so I'm very partial no, to my wiper right I Sorry, I'm in a non-snake species that is reptilian. Oh, <laughs> uh, probably. I don't know. I would probably say something weird like a tuatara or something, not because you'll ever be able to keep one or anything like that, but just because it's just an interesting kind of evolutionary story with those guys. They're the only surviving members of an entire family of reptiles that's otherwise extinct, and that's kind of a kind of a little, uh, you know evolutionary uh, time traveler there, so that's pretty interesting to me. Uh, among right. more common things, I've always had a penchant for green basilisks for some reason. <laughs> Yeah, I've kept them and bred them, and I just—they're just—you know—is there anything cooler looking than that? Really, it looks like a dragon. Uh, I mean, how do you make a cooler looking lizard than that? Yeah, they are really neat looking. Uh, I totally think they look like dragons. <laughs> they do. It's amazing. They're amazing. It's like a—it's it's almost it's like a peacock of lizards or something. It's like the most yeah. impractical thing you can imagine, but uh, they are something to look at. Yeah. Yeah, some drawbacks. They're a little flighty and you know hard to keep in a really large cage, and they're kind of a little not the mellowest things, but they are something to look at for sure. Right. So, so. Um, Dayton, you with us? Yeah. 
<laughs> you've you've been quiet. Um, uh, I kind of had uh, not an off-topic question. I just wanted to touch really quick on uh, annulatus. Um, is there anything different you do in preparation for breeding than you do with Hortolanus? No, nothing. I pretty much treat them like the same. Uh, they've got a, uh, uh, a few more hides because they tend to be a little shyer and stuff. And they'll sit in a hide on the floor or wherever. Whatever hides you give them, they're going to wedge themselves in it. So I'm more mindful of that, that they've got, uh, you know, good hide options and stuff. Uh, uh, but here, you know, basically, about you know, really no different. I mean, that's not to say that what I'm doing is perfect, though. It's like it is successful and that nothing ever dies. They all seem to live forever. And they do, apparently, even on rare occasion, even reproduce. Uh, but I'm sure that I'm also not foolish enough to think that what I'm doing is the only way or the best way or even necessarily a good way. I mean, it's the way I'm doing it because I don't know of any better way. And But I would be, if anybody has a better way, I would be certainly uh, open to listening. It's uh, there's, uh, I'm kind of an old school in that I kind of like to, well, you guys touched on it earlier before you brought me on, and the kind of listen to the snakes kind of uh, philosophy. Uh, you will, if you watch the snake's behavior in whatever circumstance, whatever you know, set of criteria you're talking about, they will give you some indication of what's going on maintenance-wise. If something has a bad shed all the time, it's probably not humid enough. Uh, you know, simple things like that. If it's, you know, uh, so I tend to wa- watch them and you know, and, and adjust my husbandry to what seems to make them most content. But uh, it's not a perfect system, uh, although it it does seem to work. But there's always always room for improvement. It's it's impossible to recreate nature inside of a box. It's just impossible. It's too complex of a thing. So all we're doing is we're just trying to, you know, hit the uh, really important things as best we can to get close enough uh, and stuff. It's impossible to make a, you know, a true representation of what the, you know where these things live and stuff. So in our right. homes, so we do the best we can. You also guys also mentioned it's like oh you know everything wants to breed. It's like well, that's true. It's, everything's mission in life is to make the, the meaning of life is to make more life, pretty much. And it's almost like I think sometimes they breed in spite of us, not because of us, and stuff. It's uh, we just need to set the stage and let them do what they are naturally programmed to do and get out of their way a lot of times. Uh, right. Yeah. That's uh, definitely what they want to do. Uh, well, um, we're kind of out of time, so uh, I think. I don't know how it works with this. I don't know if it's still recording or or what. But. <laughs> We're in no man's land. It's 901. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it's the pilot episode. You, people will cut you some slack. Uh, <laughs> hope, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody might ever hear this little bit right now because it's after 9 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, might be uh, may not. Lost, to the, lost to the history books. <laughs> um, well, we want to make sure people have a way of getting a hold of you, Nick. Uh, Jason obviously mentioned, you know, getting a hold of him at, on Facebook is probably the best way. Uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, I'm the easiest guy in the world to get a hold of. I do have in, uh, my Facebook uh, page at Inland Reptile uh, or my through my website, which is just inlandreptile.com. Uh, I'm, I do this for a living, so I'm the easiest guy in the world to reach by phone or email. And stuff so or Facebook message or what have you. So maybe we could post that on Facebook in case this isn't being recorded. Just you know, like oh. we gave Jason a shout out, we give Nick a shout out on Facebook. Yeah, my sure my shout outs after the closing bell, so no one will hear 
Yeah, no, no, it's just yeah, the Inland Reptile Facebook page or my website or any. I mean, I'm any number of ways. I'm easy to find. Right. I, I heard your Ooh. shout out, Nick. Does that help? <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. We've, we've reached at least one. Getting the word out. Right. Well, we really yeah, appreciate I, I both you guys there. coming on. Go ahead. Yeah, no problem. Anytime, guys. I already yeah, liked your um, Facebook page, so it's not even a new a new like or anything. There you go. <laughs> so, well, guys, thanks for having having me on. And uh, once you get a few few more episodes on, and uh, you get a bigger crowd, maybe we can do it again and get more into husbandry or something. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it it was a trial run for us, and you know, hopefully, we can get a few under our belt. It'll it'll go a little smoother. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for you guys, guys taking the effort. It's it's not the easiest thing ever, I'm, I know. So thanks for taking the effort yeah. and running with it and trying to get something going. No one else is doing it. And so, it, you know, you guys have to be the only ones. Uh, yeah. I was figuring out the headphones. Yeah. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I cannot believe we were trying to figure out the headphones for like the first five minutes. I literally got beads of sweat rolling down my face because I'm like, holy crap. What's going on with these headphones? How come I, I can't, uh, you know? And so, anyway, either here or there, but we got it all worked out. So. All right. All right. Well, um, good to have you on, guys. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. Yeah, you, you have a good one. You too. Take care. All right, Dayton. Yeah. Well, um, that didn't, that wrap didn't work exactly how I was expecting. The what? I said I probably didn't really get a wrap that one up. Yeah, well, That's I don't know if it, Sorry about that I don't know one, if yeah. it'll. I know that they the live go the live recording goes off um, after two hours, but I think from what I've heard that they can still listen to the episode tomorrow, the full thing. So, uh, assuming that's the case um, for anybody that's tuning in, be sure to check us out on Facebook at, you know, obviously www.facebook.com slash Corralish Radio. You can listen to all the episodes at blogtalkradio.com slash Corralish Radio or um, visit us uh, on the web at www.corralishradio.weebly.com. And next week, who are we having on next week? Ed Uh, Marino. Yeah, Ed Marino is going to be coming on. So we'll be talking I don't know basins. about you. I'm, go ahead. Oh, I just said, and we'll be talking basins. Yeah, we'll be talking basins and uh, breeding for specific traits. So should be should be a pretty cool topic. Yeah, I, I think having one guest will be easier to kind of manage too. Yeah, it, it should uh, it should go a little smoother, and you know, obviously we will have worked out one or two of the kinks that made this uh, episode of interesting trial run. So. Well, uh, unless you have anything else, I'm, you know, I've got nothing. All right. Uh, do you want to, like, I don't know, get off the air and I could talk to you? Is there anything you want to talk about? Or? Um, well, I don't even know if we're on. I mean, I don't even know if this is being recorded, but um, if it is, and the next episode will be on October 20th. But um, I'm good. You know, we can... We can reconvene uh, after this, if you'd like. 
All right, well, thanks for listening. Have a good one. All right, bye-bye.